Father, we come to you thankful today for your abundant provision in our lives, and we give back to you these, our tithes and our offerings with grateful hearts, asking that you bless and use these for your name's sake here and around the world. Lord, we long for you to be known among the nations. We long for your praises to be sung among all peoples. And so we pray that as we sing today, we might be a light and a testimony to those around us and that you might use the resources that we have given to carry out your kingdom plan in our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please remain standing, if you will, and look in your Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew 21 and verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, the Mountain of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would open it to our hearts, that you would instruct us according to your will, cause us to see that which is intended for us to see. Give us understanding and wisdom as we hear. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. For those of you who've been with us, we've been going through the book of Genesis, so we're taking a break from that for Palm Sunday and Easter. Um, It's appropriate to do that because this is is a high time in the life of the church. Uh, We had a family discussion recently about wishing that there was more emphasis or more celebration uh, around the time of Easter as there was at Christmas. There's a certain anticipation at Christmas and I think a lot of that is cultural, and it's a little bit nostalgic, and it is what it is. But this is a a special time in the life of the church, a time in which we pause what we're normally doing, and we come and we consider what happened. But the challenge is, we've all heard it. You may have come to church today thinking, it's a good nap today, because I know everything. There's nothing Seth can say that I haven't heard before. And you're right. You see, the temptation for me is to try and get sneaky and creative and tricky and all of that as if I need to do that. I hate to admit that I even have those thoughts that go through my head, but I realize this is God's Word. He doesn't need me. He can deliver it, oh, he can deliver it through a donkey. No, that's not the story we're talking about today. He doesn't need me to deliver His Word, but He 
uses the preacher to accomplish that task. And so my prayer today is that we're able to hear him and what he has to say even through a story as familiar as this. I mean, you think about it. This is one of the earliest stories in our memories if we grew up in the church that we remember. Why? Because there were palm branches. And we often had Sunday school teachers that brought palm branches. And you, know, you may have been in a church where the children got to wave the palm branches. It's just one of those things that stuck in our memory. But the entire Passion Week is significant, not just because of what happened, but it's, uh, it's significant in the sense, the significance of it comes through in how the gospel writers account for it. They give a considerable portion of each of the Gospels to this Passion Week. If you think about Jesus' life of 33 years, his ministry of just three years, the Passion Week was just these eight days, Sunday to Sunday. And yet in Matthew, he gives a fourth of his Gospel to this week. Mark gives a third, Luke gives a fifth, and John gives almost half of his Gospel to the Passion Week. Why? Because this is why Jesus came. Everything was leading up to what would happen this week and would be culminated on what we celebrate next Sunday. So this is a building climactic story. One of the reasons that I chose Matthew to look at this, uh, this account of the, the triumphal entry is the theme of Matthew's gospel. Matthew writing primarily to a Jewish audience was for them to see that Jesus is the king of Israel. He is the long-awaited one, the son of David, the promised one. Everything that they were looking for was fulfilled, being fulfilled, and would be fulfilled in the life of Christ. So the three things that I want us to see today in the text are, one, that this was a deliberate plan. This was also a prophesied plan, and this was a kingdom plan. So first, the fact that it was deliberate. Well, the whole account of the donkey makes it clear that this was a planned-out event. Jesus had made sure this would happen. This was no accident. He left Jericho. There was a crowd with him. Jericho to the south and east of, of Jerusalem, making his way up. You have to cross over the Mount of Olives, going toward the west. And when you do cross over, you get that view of Jerusalem from the east, from the Mount of Olives. It's the view that we're, even if you've never been to Jerusalem, you have seen pictures of. That's the view, the city view. And so he's coming up to that. That's where he's going to make his entrance. And the entrance is going to occur with this crowd of people that are coming with him from Jericho, not just his disciples, but others who were following him, as well as all of these people who would join him in these villages. There was a very deliberate, intentional act of Jesus to draw the crowds at this point. And this is interesting because in many cases during Jesus' life and ministry, he kind of dispelled the crowds, didn't he? He removed himself from the crowds. He seemed like he didn't want the crowds, that he didn't want the attention. Here he is doing just the opposite. On top of all of that, there was a a lot of holiday traffic in the area because it was Passover. This was Passover week. And so many Israelites would be coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover in the city. And Jesus would take advantage, so to speak, of this increasing number of people who would look and say, who is this? As he and the crowd are traveling with him, approaching the mountain, he sends the two disciples out to retrieve this donkey. Go into the village, in verse 2, in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey and a colt with her. There's two animals here. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. 
Another interesting thing is that in all the life and ministry of Jesus, we have no account of him riding any animal. There's, there's no, not to say he didn't ride an animal, there's just no account of it. Which again adds some sense of intention, intentionality to this, that he was intending to show something through this. There was a visual message for his observers in seeing him enter on this cult of a donkey. Another reason we know that it's deliberate is that he had either prearranged with the owners to borrow these animals so that they would say, sure, when, uh, when, the, when the disciples said the Lord needs them, or that somehow he had divinely administered their willingness to share the animals when they heard the Lord needs them. Either way, it was planned and it was intentional because I don't think any of us would let someone just come in and take our animals, our property, your car. Think of it that way. The Lord needs them. There's four results from this deliberate plan. The first is the demonstration itself. The enthusiasm of the crowd that would develop would gather greater and greater attention as they moved closer to the city, including that of the religious leaders. This is, again, kind of the opposite of what we had seen Jesus do up to this point. And so secondly, not only does it gather a growing attention, but it, it, it forces the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, who had all along been trying to trap Jesus and even kill him, it forces them to get on his timetable, the timetable of the Father. Up until this point, their attempts had been thwarted. They couldn't understand why. They were just attempting over and over again to catch him. But the God in heaven who administered this whole plan was sovereignly working through the details. And so if you think back to what we've been looking at in Genesis, every animal that he created, every plant that he made that would become a palm branch, everything he put in place to unfold this story. Third, it's the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. We'll look at that more in a moment. And then fourth, the demonstration was one to show what kind of king Israel had. A king who came in peace humbly and gently. This wasn't what they were looking for. Jesus did not come to overthrow Israel or overthrow the Romans from oppressing Israel, but to bring peace between man and God. In other words, the desires of Israel were just too small. They thought that deliverance from the Romans was the answer to everything. And before we look down our noses at them, so do we. Don't we? I mean, we think if this one situation, if this one little thing in our lives, if we had this one element, it could be something in the political world or it could be something in our own world. If our, if our 401k had just done a little bit better, if so-and-so had won this election or that election, if, if this had happened you know, in, in the culture at large, my life would be better. My life would be okay. Deliverance from Roman occupation would only have provided a partial and temporal peace for the Israelites because they still would have had the problem of their own sin. My father-in-law, I've quoted him before, I'll say it again, everywhere you go, there you are. Right? You can remove all the other people that are all the problems, but then there you are. And that was the problem for them as well. Jesus came to bring true peace. Peace by the blood of the cross, whereby our sins would be forgiven. 
And this would not only deliver peace between man and God, something that we see foretold again and again. For example, Psalm 85.10, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. What a beautiful picture. Paul would later write, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's one picture of the peace that we would have, the ultimate peace. But this would also give us the ability to have peace with other men. In Zechariah's prophecy of the coming king, he wrote, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. When you have lived in a war-torn nation, peace means something more to you. We kind of take peace for granted. It's okay, I'm so thankful we live in a peaceful nation, but talk to your brothers and sisters around the world who have lived in a war-torn nation and you will come to understand that their appreciation of peace is something far beyond what we can understand. Even further, in Ephesians 2.14 we read, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The deliberate plan of Jesus was carried out through the provision of this cult coming in to carry him into the city to show that your king is one of peace who arrives before you. He didn't enter on a war horse or on a stallion. He came humbly in gentleness to show who he was and what he was doing. This deliberate plan also, though, fulfilled the prophecy of the coming king. And that's our second point. In verse 4, we see that this had been prophesied. Matthew gives the explanation to explain this was not only an intentional act by the man they saw on the colt, but this had been pre-announced or foretold by the God of Israel through the prophets. The words here are a combination of two, one from Isaiah and one from Zechariah 9. Isaiah 62, 11, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. And Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The message is the same in both of these. Behold, your king is coming and he's bringing salvation. Unfortunately, their understanding of salvation would be way too small. They would be looking at salvation in a temporal, partial sense from Roman occupation. But God had a much bigger plan in place. R.C. Sproul writes, Jesus was consciously fulfilling a messianic prophecy, not because he wanted to make a name for himself by doing what the Old Testament had foretold, but because he was submissive to the word of God and eager to do what it required the Messiah to do. The son submitted himself to the will of the father, eager to do what he had foretold. Why is it important to talk about the prophetic nature in light of the triumphal entry? Well, first, the fulfillment helps us to understand God's redemptive plan. Again, I go back to our study in Genesis, how all of this story is this big unfolding story of the plan of God's redemption. And so when God says something is going to happen and it happens, it shows that He's at work in history, in our lives, through real people, through real acts, 
carrying out His plan of redemption. Think of the religious leaders of the day. They had plotted to silence and kill Jesus. And from a human perspective, these were the most powerful people in Jerusalem. But until the appointed time, they couldn't carry out what they wanted to carry out. You think of world leaders in any time in history, including our own time. They, like any of these other world leaders, were under the illusion that they held all the power. They had no idea what was really happening. And until the appointed time, nothing would happen. God had a plan, a plan that he announced through the prophets that Jesus was now fulfilling. And by quoting the prophets, Matthew helps us to see God's redemptive plan unfolding. There's another prophetic fulfillment in this passage as well. In verse 9, we read it this morning in our reading from Psalm 118. The words of the people were the very words spoken in Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, God saves, right? They're looking for salvation. The messianic fulfillment of Jesus comes not just through the actions of Jesus, but through the crowds as well. The whole story shows that God is at work orchestrating the events just as he had planned. There was no mistake. There was no whoops. There was no, oh my goodness, what's happening? That doesn't happen with God. Why do I point this out? Because when things happen in your life, don't you react that way? I know I do. Lord, what is this? Why is this happening this way? Why is that happening this way? You know, aren't you surprised? I'm surprised. How are you going to clean up this mess? And yet the same God who rules and reigns today this is the same God who orchestrated all of these events to carry out His redemptive plan. One additional point worth noting is the description found in the prophecy, the king would come in humility. Israel had been told this, that your king is coming as a humble king. And yet, what were they still looking for? I mean, this wasn't the attribute they were working for, looking for, but it's not the attribute we would look for either. We look at the outside. God looks at the heart, but God knew exactly what His people needed. They needed a Savior King. They needed a Redeemer King. They knew they needed one who would come in gentleness and lowliness to stoop down on our level and lay down His life. This was how Jesus described Himself in Matthew 11. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, it wasn't just because he came riding on a donkey that made Jesus humble. It was because he came as a man. The one who spoke everything into existence entered the creation himself put on flesh himself, condescended himself, lowered himself to enter our world to save us. Philippians 2, that Jesus made himself nothing and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was coming into the city on this cult of a donkey, literally riding to his death. Even though this is called the triumphal entry, this is not... In the beginning here, a triumphal story, is it? One author notes that the triumphal entry was by way of betrayal, crucifixion, and death, that this king was to triumph over death for his people. The the triumphal entry was by way of betrayal, crucifixion, and death, that this king was to triumph over death 
for his people. That's how you and I have been saved. A king who is willing to come and to die. The third point, and finally, this is a kingdom plan. Verse 6 tells us the disciples obeyed, that they brought Jesus this colt and the mother with it, laying their cloaks on the back of the colt. That a king would ride a donkey wasn't necessarily unheard of. Kings typically rode war horses, animals that showed power, but at times they also rode donkeys. But this was an announcement of the kind of kingdom that Jesus was bringing. It was not an earthly kingdom of power and war, but it was instead a kingdom of heavenly power, power of peace, namely that Jesus was going to bring peace to man by saving him from his sins. We typically don't think of peace as power, but it is. You think of the power of peace. You think of places that have been transformed from, or, or even in our own relationships, when we're restored, when there's been conflict. Peace comes in power to bring that restitution. The problem is peace is often confusing. Peace is often invisible in its power. Some, to some people it's even foolishness. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This power was going to change the world. In fact, we can continue to see how it's changing the world. In history, in ways greater than any temporal leader could have ever done, what they were really looking for by overthrowing the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, where is it today? Where's the Greek Empire? Where's the Ottoman Empire? Where are all these other empires? Where will the United States be in another 200 years? Vanished probably like the rest of them. Why? Because no earthly kingdom lasts. Jesus was bringing a kingdom that is eternal, that will never end. And the power of this kingdom has changed the world through the work of the church and through the lives of His people by the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a sign of honor, the the disciples spread their cloaks out. They put them on the colt. Others put their cloaks on the ground, even put palm leaves down. And as they they went, they shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Whether they knew it or not, and certainly there were some who probably understood more than others, and there were others who probably got caught up in the crowd, their shouts were crowning Jesus as Messiah. God was providentially working through this crowd so that everyone in Jerusalem would hear about this. And it's exactly what happened. In verse 10 we read, the whole city was stirred up. Everyone's wondering, who is this? And the answer that Matthew records is that the people stated that he was a prophet from Galilee. And I find that kind of anticlimactic. Wait, that's it? That's all they came up with? The prophecy, they just announced, I mean, they were speaking the prophecy in their words. They They were using the very words from the prophecy of what the Messiah, who he was, what he would look like, how he would come. And that this that's the answer they come up with? A prophet? It's not a bad answer. Jesus certainly was a prophet, but he was so much more. They were, they were missing all that was happening. They were missing that this was in.
leading up to the death of Jesus on Friday. In John 10, 18, Jesus says, no one takes it from me. I'm speaking of his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus came as a humble king to die for his people, willingly laying down his life for theirs according to the will of the Father. And just as the Israelites didn't need deliverance from Roman occupation, oh, that would have been great, it would have been good, it would have been something to celebrate. You and I don't simply need deliverance from whatever earthly powers we think oppress us. I mean, it's good to live in freedom. Freedom is a wonderful thing, something, again, I think we take for granted at times, but it's ultimately not what we need. And we can get caught up in these things, whether it's the current political climate that worries you, whether it's climate change, whether it's mainstream media, whether it's the fear of socialism or the fear of wealthy capitalists, or it's the fear of your own retirement account not being enough or the stock market not performing, or maybe it's the fear that you'll end up alone or sick. Our deliverance from all of these things pale in comparison of what we face at the end of life. We could write an endless list of the things that we fear, things that will all pass away. But the bigger thing that we need to consider is what we face when we stand before God. All of us, everyone in this room, is going to die. Unless Jesus returns, that is certain. That's all before every one of us. When Jesus came as a humble king, he came offering, bringing, delivering peace. When he returns again, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus will return on a war horse, on a stallion, in power to judge all of us. How can we stand before this king? By responding to the humble king's offer now. Come to me, all who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the words of Zechariah, behold your king. He comes to you not with the sword. He comes to you with a gift of new life. A gift of cleansing from all guilt and shame. A gift of peace and a gift of hope. If you reject him as the king of peace, you will face him as the king of judgment. He will come back. Come to the king and trust him today. Put your whole faith in him today as your savior. He is mighty and he is good. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. It is this, our good and humble king, that we see represented before us in the table today, in this meal of bread and wine. And just a few nights after this event, this was Sunday, coming up on Thursday's Passover, and yet this was going to be a Passover like no other, a Passover during which Jesus would say and institute the Lord's Supper that we celebrate today and we continue to celebrate until his return, that this was the the coming king's doing. Not to bring peace between war-torn countries, although that is certainly coming. There is certainly coming a day when we will all know peace. But peace between man and God. Peace and the forgiveness of sins. The ultimate peace. And that's what we come to today in this table. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would so work in our hearts to cause us to see the goodness of the King. Lord, if there is anyone here who does not trust in Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And Lord, for all of us who do look to Christ in faith and trust him alone, I pray that you would shore up our faith as a result of looking at you, King of kings, Lord of lords, knowing that you came humbly and gently riding on the colt of a donkey to deliver us from the ultimate issue, sin, death. And now you reign risen and glorious, victorious over all things, with our hope being the same that we will follow you in that, in the resurrection. So shore up our faith in that, that we would be confident of your good work, that you will complete it, that it will come to its proper end. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.